Welcome to Trinity Fellowship Church. Thank you all for being here this morning. I want to thank you all for tuning in. Uh, those on the live stream, you can go ahead and get out your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in Mark chapter 11. Uh, so we've just, uh, last week we wrapped up our summer series in the Psalms. Uh, hopefully that was a, a good time for us, a fruitful time for us, but I'm really excited uh, to be back in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we're going to be specifically today looking at chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Somebody asked me this week, they said, uh, why, why do you all like go through books of the Bible? Uh, why, why, why don't you all like change it up more, hop around? Uh, and, and it was somebody that was watching the live stream. They said, you know, also you all read a lot of scripture. There's a couple times throughout the service where you'll just read from the Bible. And, um, and it made me uh, think of this quote from, from Don Whitney. And I'll just tell you this as you're turning uh, to Mark chapter 11. Uh, Mark, Donald Whitney, he said, There is no spiritual discipline more important than the intake of God's word. Pretty simple, right? Um, but, but that's what we want to do here at Trinity Fellowship Church. We want to expose ourselves to God's word. Uh, we want to read God's word. Uh, we want to believe God's word. We want to hear it. We want to listen to it. Uh, and we don't want it to just uh, go into our minds just so it's this like intellectual practice. Uh, we want it to get to our hearts and we want God's word to get to our hands. Right. So so that's why we do all that, because we believe that we need God's word. Um, just a little recap, uh, just to kind of um, uh, set the context for where we are in Mark. It's, it's been a while since we've been in Mark. So just a, a few refreshers. Uh, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark is is the author, obviously, and he has one intention, uh, and his one his main purpose is that we would know who Jesus Christ is. That's the most important question you could ask, and it's the most important uh, question that you'll ever answer: Who is Jesus? And Mark does a really good job showing us who Jesus is uh, throughout his account, and, and and what he basically tells us is is that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the divine. Son of God. Jesus is um, God in the flesh. In the first verse opens up the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So he's very open and honest about it. Um, I think it's interesting that at the beginning of the gospel of Mark, there's this tearing. If you remember uh, at Jesus's baptism, the heavens tore open and it was the father who declared that Jesus was the son of God, his beloved son of God. And then at the end of the gospel of Mark, there's another tearing. If you remember, there is a tearing uh, of the curtain in the temple and it is the Roman guard, the centurion, who also declares that Jesus is the son of God. So the, the gospel of Mark has these two bookends uh, at the beginning and the end and they are declaring that Jesus is the son of God and everything in between that is doing the same. Uh, I also think it's interesting that you know, Jesus has a lot of, um, he, he's had a lot of controversy with the religious leaders of that day. So you can just remember that because uh, this last section that we're going to uh, be in, chapters 11 through 16, is really going to highlight uh, that opposition from the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the elders, uh, the scribes, just the, uh, the uh, religious establishment of Israel. And, you know, things have moved very quickly. Remember, anybody, uh, and I don't do this often, anybody know the, the big word that Mark uses a lot? He uses this word a lot uh, throughout the Gospel of Mark. It starts with an I. 
I'm giving you a big hint. Immediately, right? Mark, he moves at a very fast pace, right? It's the shortest gospel. So all the other gospels, you know, they get in the weeds a little bit more. Mark is very to the point. You know, he's constantly, you know, he, he, he all, all, really what he wants you to do is just see that Jesus is the Son of God, the divine Son of God that is ushering in God's kingdom. And he, and he just really highlights that and um, it, it makes that a, a big point. But what I think is interesting is, uh, the first 11 chapters of the Gospel of Mark is like two years and 51 weeks of Jesus' ministry, right? He covers that in 11 chapters. But this last section that we're going to cover, chapters 11 through 16, is just one week, right? So, so we're, we're going to be looking, you know, he spends five, or he spends chapters 11 through 16 really zooming in and honing in on the last week of Jesus. So uh, we're going to slow down. And, and really look at that last week uh, of Jesus' life. And I think that's interesting. So uh, today's passage is going to describe Jesus' entrance into the capital city of Jerusalem. Uh, and it's just very helpful, like I said, if we remember that this actually marks the first day. Uh, this passage is going to mark the first day of the final week of Jesus' life. So in seven days from now, uh, in this last section of Mark, uh, Jesus will be fastened to a Roman cross and he will die. But this is what Mark chapter 11 says. So let's read uh, verses 1 through 11 and then we'll pray. Mark chapter 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a coat tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a coat tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the coat? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the coat to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray. Father, uh, we just ask you this morning that you would help us. And we pray that you would sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as many of you all know, I'm a middle school teacher, and this week we had open house at our middle school. And our middle school is kind of like a transitional school. It's 8th and ninth grade. Uh, the other middle school in the community is 6th and 7th grade. So open house is a big deal for our school as I teach 8th graders because every student that I see come into my classroom, it's their first time in the building. Um, you know, they, they're nervous. They're scared. You know, it's a, you know, you know how it is. It's, it's not just, you know, your first day of school, but it's a new building, new teachers. Everything's new. 
Uh, so, you know, as a teacher, I want to make a good impression with every student that I see. You know, I want the students and the parents to know uh, that they can trust me. I want the students to know that, that I'm going to try to understand them, uh, that I'm not going to be unnecessarily difficult, you know, that I'm going to challenge them, but, I, but that I'm going to be good to them. Um, and and that, that's, that's kind of what that open house is all about. You're kind of revealing um, in, in a nutshell, uh, in, in a short period of time, what kind of teacher you're going to be. So it's a big deal. Like everybody's nervous on open house night because, I mean, that sets the stage. You're revealing what kind of a teacher you're going to be. And, um, and it's, it's really similar here in the Gospel of Mark. Mark isn't revealing uh, the kind of teacher Jesus is going to be, but what he does want to do in his Gospel is he wants to reveal what kind of a king Jesus is going to be. Right. And what we learn is that Jesus is no or he's no ordinary king. He's not your regular run of the mill ordinary king. I don't know exactly what you think about Jesus, not all of you, but you cannot compare him to anything on this earth. And so what we're going to see is we're going to see that Jesus is the divine king. We'll see that Jesus is a humble king, uh, but we'll also see that Jesus is a saving king. So first we're going to see that Jesus is a divine king. And what immediately struck me about this passage as I began to study it <clears throat> was the um, attention and detail that Mark gives uh, to Jesus's acquisition uh, of this donkey. I mean, he takes the first six verses to describe how Jesus is securing transportation for his journey into Jerusalem. I mean, you think he could be able, he could do that a little bit quicker. It's almost as if, you know how you're in a class and you got to write a paper and there's like a word count and man, you'll stretch that thing out uh, just to hit that word count. I know I would do that. And, you know, I'm just rambling at this point. Um, it's just very wordy, but, but I don't think that's what Mark is doing here. He gives so much attention and detail to Jesus's acquisition of a donkey. I think he's doing that to communicate something to us. Um, and that's extremely important. This is something we need to know and take note of and recognize. So as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, he sent two of his disciples on a very peculiar mission. He says, I want you guys to go into a nearby village. I want you to go uh, to a very specific location, and there you're going to find a coat uh, that is a young donkey, and, and that young coat, uh, no one has ever ridden it or rode on it before, and I want you to untie that coat, and I want you to bring it back to me. <clears throat> and if you think about it, it's not just a peculiar mission, uh, but it's also a risky one. Uh, because if they do this, it's going to appear to everyone that's watching them that they are going to be stealing this donkey. Um, you know, imagine you're in your front yard. Uh, you're doing some yard work, you know, you and your family. And, and so, someone, some joker just walks, you know, up into your driveway. And he opens your car door. And he sticks the key in the ignition. And he turns it. Um, and, and, you know, he puts it in reverse. What are you going to assume? You know, you're, you're going to think that they're stealing your car, man. Uh, and, and you're going to say, you know, what are you doing? You can't, you can't steal my car. But that's essentially what these disciples are about to do with this donkey. It looks like they're hijacking a donkey. And Jesus knows this, and he anticipates this. So what does Jesus do? He tells them when they're asked about what they are doing that they just need to respond by saying, if you look at verse 3, the Lord needs it, and he will send it back shortly. That wouldn't really comfort me a whole lot in that moment, but that's what he tells them to do. He says, 
says, just tell them that the Lord needs it. And that's an unusual plan. But what's even more unusual is that it unfolds exactly how Jesus predicts it. Uh, the donkey is in the exact location uh, that Jesus described. And, and when the owner tells them, hey, you know, what are you doing? Uh, they state to them what Jesus told them to say. And he lets them go. Look at verse 6. The, the plan worked. They answered them just as Jesus had told them to do. So they let them go. So what does this tell us about the kind of king that Jesus is? It reveals that Jesus possesses divine insight. And, and I don't think this is a coincidence. This is not something that Jesus worked out on the front end like some uh, scholars will say. This reveals to us that Jesus actually has supernatural perception. This is another instance of Jesus revealing to us his divine sovereignty and his divine authority. He's unlike any other king. You can't compare him to any other king. In fact, this is somewhat similar to what took place way back in chapter 2. I know that was a long time ago. You may not remember when we were there, but let me just br bring you up to speed. You remember the paralytic man, right? Uh, no one can get to Jesus in this setting because it's, it's so crowded. So this paralytic man has four buddies, and his buddies put a hole in the roof, and they drop him down in front of Jesus, and, and then Jesus heals the paralytic man. But before he heals the man, he declares before everyone that the sins of this paralytic man were forgiven, right? Which that is something that only God can do, forgive sins, right? But he declares forgiveness on this man and, and the religious leaders in response, what do they do? This is my point, really. What do they do? They silently in their hearts, they accuse Jesus of blasphemy. Right? Because they know that only God can forgive sins. So they say, man, this dude, he's trying to act like he's God. Like, that's, that's not cool. That, that's what they do. They don't make any comments. They don't say it to anybody. But, but that's what they're thinking in their hearts. And, and then we are told right away that we know that they're thinking that in their hearts because it says Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like, like that. Uh, within themselves. So the Lord sees not as man sees. We were reading from 1 Samuel today. I think it's in 1 Samuel where uh, it says that, you know, man, we see the outer appearance, right? We, we, we see the material, but, but, but it is God who sees the inward, right? The Lord is the one who knows the heart of a person. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. In addition to this, notice Jesus understands himself to be divine. This isn't something the church develops later uh, and imposed uh, that onto Jesus. Did, did you notice how Jesus referred to himself in verse 3? If anyone asks you why you are doing this, say what? Say the Lord needs it. This isn't merely a, a respectful title. Uh, Jesus identifies himself as the Lord, as Yahweh himself. So you got some people who say, man, Jesus never really claimed to be God. No, he does. He, he definitely does. Um, and, and, you know, this isn't just mere talk like, hey, I'm the Lord. Like, like you know, I could say I'm the Lord, but that doesn't mean it's true, right? J Jesus, uh, he, he has repeatedly demonstrated the fact that he is the Lord, that he possesses divine authority. Jesus does what only God can do because Jesus is God. In the Gospel of Mark, he forgives sinners. He overturns long-lasting religious traditions. Uh, he cures untreatable diseases. 
He controls the forces of nature. He even raises the dead. That's because he, he's no ordinary king. Um, you, you know, some people may say, man, you Christians, man, y'all just believe in like miracles and all this crazy stuff. No, we believe Jesus can do that. Not, not anybody else. You know, if you tell me you're stopping storms, I'm not believing you, right? It's Jesus. He's the one who, who we're talking about and who, who we're making much of. But second, though, uh, first, Jesus is a divine king. But second, Jesus is a humble king. He's a humble king. One of the unmistakable features of this account is there is uh, there are multiple references, identifiers of Jesus's kingship, that he is the Messiah, that he is the king. So, for example, in the ancient world, uh, a king could claim rights uh, to any animal, to any person, to any item uh, for his immediate service. We see this stated explicitly in the Old Testament. If you recall 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people of Israel, they're saying, man, we want a king. And, and God says, man, you don't need a king. I'm your king. And, and the people are like, no, nah, no, nah. everybody else has a king. We want a king too. And God says, you don't want an earthly king because he's going to have all these rights uh, and he's going to have all this authority over you. And then God says uh, specifically to his people in 1 Samuel 8, uh, he being the king, he can take your servants, he can take your best men, uh, and, and, and check this, and he can take your donkeys. <laughs> so it was common for the king to do all of this. It's it stated in the Mishnah as well, which is a rabbinic tradition, that nobody was allowed to ride on the king's horse except the king himself. His horse was his horse alone, which is why Jesus selected a coat in which no one had ever sat on. And you can read that in the text too. So what's up with that? Well, it's letting us know that Jesus is a king. Uh, the spreading of the cloaks and the branches onto Jesus' path in verse 8 was a way to show him uh, honor and respect. It was sort of a way to give him a red carpet treatment. But it was also an allusion uh, to the inauguration of the previous king of Israel, and his name was King Jehu. And this is what 2 Kings chapter 9 says. Uh, Jehu said, thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. But the clearest indicator of Jesus' kingship is actually found in a prophecy in Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9. Uh, you should write that down if you're taking notes and maybe read it later, uh, today or tomorrow. This was made 500 years before Jesus came. And this is what the text says, Zechariah 9, verse 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a coat, the foal of a donkey. So why did Jesus select a donkey? Well, one reason is because he knows that he is the fulfillment of this prophecy of Scripture. But there's another reason. Another reason was to communicate that he's unlike any other earthly king. 
So in the ancient world, especially in the Roman Empire, these extravagant parades uh, would be held whenever a military leader or a king would win a decisive battle or a foreign war. They would come back and they would have this big celebration. So obviously, just like any parade, there will be tons of people, there will be music, there will be singing, there will be dancing, and, and these victory parades would be celebrating this individual and celebrating this individual's win. So the commander or the king, he was sort of like the highlight of the day. And he would always, without exception, be carried on a chariot with, with not one, uh, not two, not three, but four horses. And there was even one, and his name was uh, Mark Antony, and he was a Roman general. And he, he chose uh, not to have horses uh, carrying or, or driving his chariot, but his chariot was driven by lions. So, so, the, so the reason they did this, the reason they would come in and, and, and be, be on a chariot with all these horses, and, and for Mark Antony's case, uh, lions, they were flexing. They were trying to show like they were the man, right? They were trying to make much of themselves, showcase their power and their glory and their majesty to sort of say, uh, you know, look how great we are. You know, and, and when you would see that, you would say, I can't get anywhere near them. You know, they're too powerful for me to approach, right? That, that's the elite of the elite. Now, what I want you to do right now is contrast that uh, with, with contrast the kings of Jesus' day with Jesus himself. No chariots, uh, no horses, no lions, uh, none of that for his parade. For his parade, he chose a baby donkey. You know, something, something that a little child could ride on. But there is purpose behind this selection. The reason he chose a donkey was to communicate his humility. He's a divine king, but he's a humble king. He, he, it was to communicate his lowliness, to communicate his tenderness, to communicate his approachability. I mean, you wouldn't dare imagine approaching a king with a chariot that, that, that's being carried by lines, would you? Uh, no way. But a king who, who comes in on a donkey, that, that king is accessible. You know, you can approach that king. Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a young donkey is a tangible expression of his own words that are found in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me. Jesus says, come to me. Uh, he, he's approachable, right? Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest uh, Jesus says, take up my yoke. A yoke was a symbol of submission and service. But he says, take up my yoke. Why? Because he, he, he's saying, I'm lowly and I'm humble in heart and you will find rest for yourselves. Uh, I like what Charles Spurgeon says specifically about this. Uh, <clears throat> he says, it is written of him that he is lowly, which cannot be said of many kings and princes of the earth, nor would they care to have it said about them. And the height of Jesus' grandeur, he is not like the proud monarchs of earth. His outward state indicates the humility and the gentleness of his character. And he appears to be what he really is. He is a humble king whose scepter is love and crown is lowliness. It's good. But he's also a saving king. Right? So he's a divine king and he's a humble king, but he's also a saving king. One of the prominent themes that we have discussed and seen throughout all the gospel of Mark is this theme of a messianic secret. 
and we've talked a lot about it in our community group. So in, in chapters 1 through 8, Jesus did everything he could to keep his identity <clears throat> as the Messiah or as the King, as the Christ. He did everything he could to try to keep it under wraps. Uh, so after he performs a miracle, whenever he cast out an unclean spirit, he regularly demanded silence. Like, don't go around telling people about this. Just kind of keep it on the low. And then we see, uh, as we approach chapters 8, 9, and 10, he's starting to revealing his identity. He's starting to reveal his identity, but not to everyone. He's revealing his identity as the Messiah to his disciples. Uh, but do you remember what he told them or, or affirmed that, that, that he was the Messiah? He demanded them to keep silent. Um, says he strictly warned them to tell no one. That, that, that's what he said. But now in chapter 11, he's revealing his identity to everyone. So by getting on a donkey and driving it into Jerusalem, Jesus is proclaiming that he is the fulfillment of Zechariah 9. And by doing so, he is informing everyone that he is the Messiah. So his entrance into the city is really an act of disclosure. In a sense, he is letting the messianic secret out of the bag. The messianic secret is no longer a secret anymore uh, at this stage of Mark's gospel. It's a visual way for Jesus to announce his identity as the, messi as the Messiah publicly. And so after Jesus climbs onto this coat, uh, Mark informs us the crowds went ahead of and followed Jesus. Jerusalem is an already densely populated city, but this event took place during the celebration of the Passover. So the population of the city would have been doubled or tripled uh, at this point in time. Because Jewish people from all over the world, what were they doing? They were pilgrimaging. They were coming into the city to observe the Passover. And so while Jesus is heading into Jerusalem, the crowd surrounding him, they burst into a song. Now, this wasn't the sort of unbelievable things, you know, that, that happens in musicals where everybody just starts singing out spontaneously. And that kind of freaks me out when I watch musicals. You know, everybody always knows the words and, you know, everybody's on the same page. The dances are the same. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's just kind of strange. But it was actually custom to sing this song during the Passover. It was used as a benediction for welcoming new pilgrims into the city. So they would have been used to doing this. Um, the lyrics of this song actually originate in Psalm 118. And I hope also that you would read Psalm 118 uh, at some point today or tomorrow in its entirety. But I want to read you verse 25 of Psalm 118. It says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. But really focus on that first part. It says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. And that's literally Hosanna. Right? Hosanna is a plea for salvation. God, save us. Uh, eventually, it became sort of a shout of praise. But originally, it was a plea for salvation. Lord, save us. Psalm 18 is also known as an Egyptian Hallel. Uh, Hallel simply means praise Yahweh. All right? It's where we get our word hallelujah. All right, Hallel, Hallelujah. Uh, it was a particular kind of psalm, Psalm 118. So this song was sung in connection with the Passover meal, uh, praising God for his deliverance uh, of the Jews out of um, the Exodus. 
Uh, so this psalm recognizes and celebrates God's salvation through his appointed deliverance. And just sort of an interesting side note, later in Mark, we're told that the disciples and Jesus sing a hymn after they had the Passover, which that ends up being the Lord's Supper, the first Lord's Supper. And most scholars, commentators, believe that it was likely Psalm 118 that they sang. Uh, but what is stunning about this is we need to understand that the crowd is singing Psalm 118 to Jesus. All right, that, that, that's what's sticking out today. But they fail to recognize that Psalm 118 is about Jesus. So they're singing it to Jesus, but they fail to recognize that it's actually about Jesus. He is the fulfillment of this hymn. Jesus is God's appointed deliverer who is going to bring salvation. He is going to lead his people into a second exodus, a true and better exodus, as hard as that would have been for them to believe. The first exodus is amazing, but this is going to be a much better exodus that's going to last for eternity. Jesus is a saving king. The way that Jesus will save his people is totally unexpected. The way he is going to save his people is by coming their substitute. Remember, uh, Israelites, Jews of that day, they thought that Jesus, uh, they thought that the Messiah was going to be a military ruler, that he was going to come in and, and that he was going to overturn uh, the Roman Empire, the Roman government, and, and make, uh, the, make Jews, make the Israelites uh, a powerful political entity. Uh, that's what people wanted. But that's not the kind of salvation that Jesus came to bring. Not yet, right? It's not a political deliverance. Uh, you see this triumphant entrance is, is much more like a death march. Because in a matter of days, like we said, this week, Jesus is going to be fastened to a Roman cross. He will endure the wrath of Almighty God on behalf of sinners like you and me. Um, in his book, The Cross of Christ, John Stott writes this. He says, The concept of substitution lies at the heart of both sin and salvation. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. And the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. So in other words, uh, sin occurs when you put yourself in God's place. Salvation occurs when God puts himself in your place. And this is why Jesus is unlike any other king in human history. Kings and tyrants and princes and mamas and daddies and grandmamas and uncles and everybody above, they're not, they're not laying down their lives like Jesus laid down his life. Jesus sacrificially laid down his life for the benefit of his people. Jesus has done something that no other king has ever done. He has conquered what no other king or, or warrior, for that matter, has ever defeated. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus has stripped death and hell and the devil of all its power. He is a saving king for all those who would trust him and bow their knee to him. And so what I want to do now in our remaining time, you know, I hope the spirit has already been at work, but I'm going to ask you to do a little bit of heart work. Uh, you know, because like I said, we don't want to fall into this temptation of thinking that, that sermons are, are, are like only for learning things, uh, that, that this is where I get intellectually stimulated. 
uh, if a sermon just remains in your head, but it doesn't go into your heart and into your hands, then it's a total failure. So let's think about how this applies to us. <clears throat> in what ways have you rated Jesus wrongly? How has your perception or understanding of Jesus conflicted with who he actually is? Well, with, with the way that scripture has revealed him. Perhaps, perhaps you consider Jesus a boring king. Um, you know, you're not openly hostile to Jesus, maybe. You're, you're not going to say hateful things about him or shake your fist at him, but you're just kind of indifferent to him. He doesn't really do anything for you except maybe cause you to just kind of shrug your shoulders. And, and, and what I would say to you is, is that can, that's a very dangerous place to be, maybe the most dangerous place to be, uh, indifference. And then I would ask you to think about what is the most passionate thing that you're thinking, that, that you're about? What's the most passionate thing um, that, that you're, um, what am I saying here? What are you most passionate about, right? And I'm saying this to myself too. What are you most passionate about? What has uh, your attention the most? What stimulates you to worship? What, what, what causes you to praise? And then I would ask, um, you know, would that thing that you're most passionate about, that thing that, that gets the most of your attention, would it sacrifice for you? Would it, would it do what Jesus has done for you? You know, and I'm not telling I'm not telling you to go, you know, sell your TV or whatever, sell your, you know, I'm not, don't just, you know, follow me here. Um, but perhaps you think Jesus is harsh, right, or disinterested in you. Maybe you view him, uh, maybe you view him as though he is um, a king that's on a chariot that's being pulled by lines. You know, you know, maybe you're saying, you know what, he, he can't forgive me, you know, I'm too far gone. You know, he, he's way, way above me. Um, and what I would say to you is that you are very wrong, that Jesus is full of compassion, that he's full of love, that he's full of mercy, that he's full of benevolence. And, and when he sees you coming to him with all of your junk, with all of your garbage, uh, he doesn't, he's not letting out a sigh. He's not bothered. Uh, he, he, he's not going to pretend to be unavailable. Right? When you spend time with Jesus, he never, I, I was talking to a guy, I went to a UK fan day yesterday, not trying to be lighthearted in a serious moment in the sermon, uh, but I was talking to a guy um, at fan day at UK yesterday, we, we were watching a football team practice, and, um, and I, I was talking to him, and I took a picture of him while I was talking to him, because he, he's, he's actually related to one of my best friends, and I thought, man, if he sees me out on my phone, you know, he's probably going to think I'm a pretty big jerk, like, you know, uh, but, but I don't know if you've ever done that, you know, you look at your phone when you're talking to somebody, I mean, that's a, that, that's a sign there, not a good one. Uh, but Jesus doesn't do that, right? When you spend time with Jesus, he's not glancing at the clock. Uh, you have Jesus' undivided attention when you're meeting with him. He delights in you. He rejoices over you. He literally died to bring you into a relationship with himself and with his father. He wants to be near to you. Um, you know, or maybe you've just forgotten that, that Jesus is trustworthy. Uh, when trials or difficulties come, um, you know, it, it's very easy to, to look at our circumstances and to be tempted that, you know what, Jesus is, is I just can't really trust him right now. I got to kind of do things my own way right here. 
Uh, maybe you think Jesus is incompetent. You think, man, Jesus can't really do anything with this, so it's too complicated. Or maybe you think, you know, hey, Jesus doesn't care because, you know, it's not that big of a deal, but it's just really hard for me. Uh, but what you must do when that happens, when your heart starts to feel this way, what you must do is fight your feelings with truth, all right? Uh, th this is one of the marks of a true Christian. When you feel a certain way, uh, but then you look at Scripture and you fight those feelings with the truth of God's Word, right? I'm not saying your feelings are always lying to you. I'm just saying you got to fight every, every feeling you have with the truth of God's Word, with the truth of the Gospel, um, so, so we got to preach that truth to ourselves. That's, that's what Christians do. And the truth is, remember, uh, that Jesus is a saving king, right? He's a, he's, a, he's a saving king, he's a divine king, and he's a humble king. And he's not indifferent to your hardships. And his substitutionary death proves all of that. The cross reminds us that Jesus has our best interest at heart. That's who Jesus is. And I hope that, that this truth will, will somehow shape and affect your heart. All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we thank you for sending Jesus uh, as to, be a, to be a saving king, to be a humble king, to be a divine king, to be a king like no other king, because that's the kind of king we need. Uh, Jesus is no ordinary king. He's, um, he's a king that has done for us what no other king uh, could ever do or would ever do. Um, Jesus is, is unlike any other. Uh, so I pray that um, as, as we continue to worship and as we leave here today, that, that we would consider in our minds and in our hearts, how are we viewing Jesus? Um, are we indifferent to him? Um, are we not trusting him? Are we not approaching him? Uh, because Jesus is someone, uh, he is a king that we can approach, that we can trust, that we can rely on. And he is a king that is inviting us to do all that. It's not just that he's waiting. He is inviting us um, every second to come to him uh, so that he can give us rest for our souls. So I pray that we would meditate on that as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper here in just a minute. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.